0: Putting It Together is brought to you this week by the 6th Annual Champy Punship, the ultimate evening of wordplay. We will take eight competitors, put them through four grueling rounds, and discover who is the undisputed disputed champy pun of the world. There will also be music from our resident house band, The Pun Loving Criminals. It's all happening at Oranmore on the 16th of October at 7.30pm. Like camping. It will be intense. Hello, hello, and welcome to the 100th episode of Putting It Together. I want to thank you all for listening and I want to thank those of you specifically who have been listening for the whole time because there are some of you and uh, anyone who's supported it along the way in all the different ways that you can support it. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This is episode 100. I'm so excited to bring it to you. It was a great time we had recording it. Um, So I'm just doing a little bit of a housekeeping intro to say hello to you, to check in and then I'll leave you in the capable hands of me from the past and Janie Godley. Uh, first of all to say that if you've not done it already you can still support the show by going to Pod on Twitter and Instagram and you can see our page on Facebook which is called Putting It Together, of course and if you want to support the show financially you can do this with any amount, small or large and you can do it one-off or regularly and you can go to the show homepage which is puttingittogethercast.com and look for the yellow donate button on the front page just click it, it, takes you to PayPal dead simple. I would really appreciate if you can afford to chip in a wee bit, buy me a coffee if you want to think of it that way. Um, Yes, and we can always use the support, trying to grow the podcast, get it to more people, make it bigger and better. So, anything you can do to help is much appreciated. Now, I hope you're well. Uh, I am away on my holidays, so I'm kind of here, but I'm kind of not. You know the way it is. And today, actually, as I record this, I'm trying to pack... Which I just hate doing. And also, um, I've got work being done in my house while I'm away. So I'm trying to clear the way for that and make sure things are organised and tidy. And it's kind of stressful. Uh, I've kind of spent all day on it. Um, and I'm close, but I always get to the last minute and realise there's more to do. So, heading to the airport in a couple of hours and there's still loads to do. And yet I feel like it's sort of done and I just want to sit down. I don't know. Anyway, it'll get done. It always gets done. Um and then long flights tonight, and uh, that'll all be a thing of the past by the time you hear this. I don't know if it is it weird me just talking about the time, <laughs> the time difference. I don't know. Maybe it's not useful. Anyway, I hope you're doing well wherever in the world you are and whatever you're up to. Um, if you're in Glasgow, like many of the listeners, you can go down to the more this week and see "Fly Me to the Moon" by Marie Jones. It's directed by Sarah McCardy and it features Sandra McNeely and Julie Austin. It's Marie Jones wrote the very famous play Stones in His Pockets, I've just discovered which is a great play that's just run and run, so I'm sure this will be good, Fly Me to the Moon and the brilliant Sarah McCarty in the director's seat so that's that's a wonderful thing good cast of strong women look forward to seeing it so that's Fly Me to the Moon this week at the Orm which is on until the 5th of October every day, 1pm and there's a pie and a pint included in the price of your ticket so other than that It's really just time for me to introduce you to my guest of the week. Although I'll be doing that... uh, I'm introducing you to myself first, because there is a wee bit in the live recording. I'm going to bring it to you now, where I'm talking to the audience. Uh, It's a long explanation, but anyway... I'm going to bring you over now to the live 100th episode, which was recorded at the Oramore a few weeks back. And if you were there, thanks very much. And if you weren't, this is your chance to hear it. So once again, thank you very much for listening and for supporting the show. Um, And if you're not already doing those vital, simple things like following us on social media or giving us a wee review or subscribing to the podcast on your podcast provider, then please do that. It won't take you long and it won't cost you anything, but it makes a big difference to the show. So yes, I'll leave you now in the capable hands of the Oran More, if you like. And it's episode 100. It's me, it's Jenny Godley, and we are Putting It Together! it's episode 100 and uh, this this bit we're doing right now is the actual podcast the people at home don't get to hear what happened before that's just for you uh thank you and you're being recorded too so your reactions are vital to this uh, recording thank you very much for coming uh, i'm not going to witter on except to say that if you want to support the show you've heard it all before you can go to pit CC pod on instagram and twitter and on facebook you just search putting it together before we begin i just want to thank gary mcnair for his fantastic hosting skills <clears throat> And there are other people working tirelessly behind the scenes to make this happen. One of them is Tom Urey, who made the new intro music. He's over there in the darkness. And Rosa Duncan, who has taken over management of my social media, which is why I suddenly seem much more interesting. Rosa Duncan! And now it gives me great pleasure to welcome my guest for episode 100. Put it your hands together for Janie Godley! Uh, That timed out pretty well.
1: Hello everybody.
0: Janie, thanks for doing this.
1: Mm, You're welcome, it's my week off.
0: (laughs) She said she wouldn't dredge it up. (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's, just, it's my week off, and I've got five things to do this week. It's my, my post-Fringe um, holiday week. Of course. Yeah.
0: How was the Fringe?
1: Fabulous. I had a great time. Um, we did the live voiceover show for the first time ever at oh, the yeah. festival, so we had like the screen and the overhead projector, and I was doing it live. And, and there might be... Um, I'm on tour with it, and it's yeah. almost sold out, but... I had a chat tonight at the Orin Moor people, and there might be an Orin Moor date right in the middle of it all. Yes!
0: <laughs> How about that?
1: So none of them's Glasgow. They're all what Livingston, East Kilbride. Right. You know that, but there was none in the centre of Glasgow, so that might change.
0: <laughs> so you've played this venue Oh, I've played before. this
1: venue um, at the Glasgow Comedy Festival. We do. We fill it for four nights in a row. It's brilliant. Nice. I love this
0: venue. Um, so this voiceover show, mm-hmm. is it... Is it improvised in any fashion or is it kind of. Everything I
1: do is improvised. (laughs) Um, It's not because I'm a genius, it's because I'm really shy at remembering what I'm supposed to say. (laughs)
0: That's
1: why I'm no good in court cases or anything like that. (laughs) Don't get me in for anything. And then a cat turned up. So, uh, yeah, I put the screen up and then I do. I just put up videos and then mm. I live um, voice over them.
0: So are the videos in a set order so you know what's coming next? Or no, is it totally no, I
1: mix them all up and I don't anything. know what they're going to be, yeah. Because okay. I think that's better or it's just me shouting out videos that I've made.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you don't need to be, be boring. live, yeah.
1: You could sit in the house and watch that,
0: you know. But a lot of people are watching, like seeing it online and you're becoming kind of a sensation for that, right?
1: Well, I'm the only person in the world that does this show. Who knew? A woman sitting in the house and, you know, people get their menopause and they start a candle party. I just start shouting fuckers' names and (laughs) all the tap of people on the telly. So it's what I've done since my ma used to do it when I was a wee lassie watching Crossroads. Like I'm sure that bastard wasn't in a wheelchair last week. (laughs) So... There's woman in here know exactly who I'm talking about. Sandy, remember him? Aye. Aye. So Mama would voice over the telly. Yeah. She'd turn the volume down and go, it's not that bad. Yeah, you're not going anywhere. Nobody plays on you, no. Know. <laughs> you know so I kind of was brought up with that. Then Ashley and I, my daughter Ashley, she, we did it to old films, because we get bored and an old black and white film would be on. And, she, I can't even talk about it without laughing because she's really funny at it. You should. One night we should do a show where we just get Ashley watching all black and white films and everybody will literally just pee. That's what I do, I <laughs> pee. Well, I, have, I need to go for a pee. Makes me laugh that much. So I just kind of took it a step further and... When the last election... Ha- There's been that many fucking elections, so... <laughs> when the last election happened, I just thought... I was sick of seeing Theresa May and Nicola Sturgeon and um, Ruth, because now the Tory party is ruthless, because Ruth is gone. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we can officially say they're ruthless now. Yeah, yeah. um
1: so I get bored with them all talking about. So I had them talking about somebody's dog shitting in a garden and stuff, because <laughs> I thought that would be a wee bit different. And folk liked them, um, and so I set my agent set up a tour and um, it's almost sold out with 50 extra dates so folk really like it Amazing. and I like that they like it because it's good fun it's, it's different you stand-up so I do a bit of stand-up I mean Lindsay McCann's here she helped produce the first one that I did at the old fruit market we thought maybe many Lindsay many would be sell, maybe 40 tickets 600 tickets sell out straight away wow. and, and we didn't know how it would work and <laughs> we just did it and it really works and I think that's a thing about Scottish women in the arts as well as, we're told that we have to fill in all these forms for the Creative Scotland and we have to set between guidelines and you have to think of things, how the, what will be the outcome and what's the expected outcome and there's a big gap between creative people who are really good at filling in forms and people who are shite at filling in forms but really good at art.
0: Mm.
1: And <laughs> um, Sometimes you meet people who just go, right, don't fill in the forms. Lindsay and Claire McCullough. Don't fill in the forms. We'll do all that. Just do what you do. And we do. And it works because I was at a, a conference recently. I had to speak to Government ministers about creative art, and I got up and made that speech about how there's really good people who are shite at what the day but good at filling in forms, and people who are really good at their art but crap at filling in forms, and never the twain shall meet. And you need to just accept really creative people who have got really good ideas. Are they good at fucking writing out what's the likely outcome of your show? <laughs> yes. We're holding laughter, you arsehole. Right? <laughs> so. People at Lindsay and Claire and Tom Yuri are brilliant at encouraging me. They just go, "Just do it." Yeah, and,
0: then and you I do just, it.
1: I just did it. So yeah. cheers to Lindsay and Claire! Yes. Just do it. <laughs> okay.
0: Is that what you were like growing up then? Just, I, just getting on it and just making stuff it. happen. And
1: yeah, I remember when I had a pub in the Calton I'll back in 1989. I had a wee pub. And it's a proper wee hardcore working man's pub. And um, I decided I wanted to write a play. I'd never been to drama school, never done. I left school at 16 because I had no shoes. But I decided to get every single person in the pub, when they came to the bar, they had to tell me a story about their life. Mm. And I got to write it down. And it was the most <laughs> revealing thing. We men, who I never knew, we, we man called Archie came up to the bar and told me how his best pal died in Korea when he was fighting with him. I'm like, I never knew this. And then I started to collate all these stories about all these wee men, and then I put a play on in 1989, first play I ever wrote, was called The Calton Nativity, and it was what if Jesus was born in the Calton and Mary was a Catholic and Joseph was a Protestant. <laughs> 1989, I wrote that. <laughs> and the customers were the characters, so what happened is on Christmas night, Christmas night, of course I put it on on Christmas night, <laughs> and people walked into the pub, said their lines, went to the bar and get away and get drunk. And it was, I actually invented moving theatre that was happening in the moment. <laughs> and I uh, never knew that could be done, but I thought, just do it, see what happens. So everybody had their lines, and even some had them wrote down because they were coming out on Christmas night. They walked in and went, I'm not in labour. I, I don't even like labour. Yeah, Jeannie, I'm not in labour. Like, shut up, keep to the fucking lines. <laughs> and um, so we did that, and I used to think, just, just do it. Just get on with it. Just do it, why not just do it? I think if you've got creative feelings and you've got a, 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 if you've got a need to create, you should need check a website to see if you're allowed to do it. Mm. When I was a kid, I used to draw on the pavements with chalk and I always get into trouble because apparently, you know, Kenmore Street and Shuttleson's pavements are very precious.
0: And the rain doesn't wash off the chalk in those streets, I, I, uh, God,
1: God forbid you chalk on the streets where Waynes are starving and Waynes have got nits in their shoes, but fuck, keep the pavements clean. And uh, I used to draw on the pavement all the time because I thought, well, why can I know?
0: Isn't it true that the, the reason you stopped going to school was literally because you didn't have the shoes? I had
1: no shoes. That's a good. true story. It's true, it was skin. And by the way, it wasn't just me. People often say, you weren't the only one. I never said it was the only poor way in fucking Glasgow. <laughs> Literally everybody I knew was the same. Yeah. There was one lassie I knew called Janice Malone. She'd nice white socks and dolls in her windy, and I'm still pals with her to this day. Normanda were dead sexy looking. Her ma looked like Sophia Loren, and her dad looked like Tony Bennett. They were Italians, and I always remember looking at them, going, "They're dead. They look like they're after covering a magazine. They don't belong in Shelton." Her ma wore one of the big scarfs that tied at the back and capri pants. Mama's like, check her, because even Mama hated her, because she was beautiful. <laughs> and uh, I was always a watcher of people, you know, I always watched people. And and there was lots of poor people. I mean, every, nearly everybody <laughs> I went to school with was fucking skint and hungry. Mm. It was the late 70s, you know. It, it was, I left school in 77, and then in 1970, we got get the winter of discontent. You know, when there was bodies piling up in the street, the bin men went and strike at, it wasn't just me, you know, yeah. so I was poor, but I, I couldn't go to school because I'd need shoes and I only had my ma's slippers and they would holes in them. So I thought, oh, fuck, I can't go to school. So I just left school and went and got a job.
0: Wow. And that's and you started working in pubs?
1: No, I went and worked. In, back then in the, the late 70s, there was lots of wee factories in Bridgeton and lots of wee factories that you could just walk in and get a job. Mm. I mean, it wasn't a great jobs, it was just jobs. People just did like wee factory jobs. And then in 1978, I ran away, I ran away. I never, nobody cared, I went. They're all like, fuck there, she's away. Make sure she's no <laughs> make sure she's no getting my fucking slippers on, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I went to car and stayed for a year in a, on, on, on the beachfront and with my pal. And then I came back, met my man and got married and started running pubs. Right, and right. then I bought shoes. Then you had shoes.
0: <laughs> Isn't there some, uh, there's some amazing statistic about the, the life expectancy in, in Carlton. And like, it's something like 55 for me. Well,
1: money? I think it, it, you know, I think it's debatable. It, it, apparently it was 56 and then it's went up. And, but you've got to remember that poverty inhibits people's ability to make decent choices. Mm. When you're really poor and you're stuck in a scheme and you're a single daddy or a single mommy and you've got a couple of wains, all your choices become very limited and it inhibits you to be able to make decent decisions. Poverty creates the inability to make decent decisions. Poverty creates the the inability to have aspirations. It makes you think there's no point in going to school. There's no point in trying to struggle. There's no point in learning to read. There's no point in opening a book. Poverty just does not affect, people always when they read about poverty, they always think, oh, it's a shame she never got her dinner and she had nits. It was not just that. It was the inability to believe that I could ever one day get in an aeroplane it was the inability to believe that one day I would be able to live in a house and no worry about being evicted. Poverty makes especially children's lives very small and they tend not to be able to see outside that Mm -hmm. and that's when crime and drugs and alcohol come into effect because if you've got fuck all to believe in then you've got fuck all to lose and that creates an awful cycle of abuse and self-abuse and um, lack of self-determination and I think people forget that poverty isn't just about not having your dinner,
0: yes. it's a
1: bit a wider thing and it kind of did that to me, it made me think that I'd never be able to do anything but then I had the opposite effect whereas I thought the minute I get shoes I'm getting to fuck
0: <laughs> <laughs> But not everybody has that, No, that's probably more rare isn't it?
1: Yeah the, I mean one of the the most frequent questions I get asked is, "Well, how how did you escape? How did you do it?" And I don't know. I think I just always, I think it's inherent in my personality. I mean, Tom Yuri will tell you this. See the mayor? You tell me to shut up. The fucking louder I shout, mm. that's been my personality since I was a child. The mayor you tell me to go to sleep. The mayor will stay awake. The mayor trolls come on the internet and go, "Shut up!" And you don't. We don't like you. The mayor all fucking day. The more you tell me to stop doing something, the more I do it louder. Mm. But that's just my weird personality, I think, which but has saved my life.
0: Did you do that when you were a kid, in terms mm. of like and and making noise? But did you know you were funny as well?
1: Yeah, I kind of I came from quite a f- funny family. Which sounds weird, but we were a family of storytellers. I mean, I didn't know we were until I met my husband. My husband's one of seven sons, and um, I know you think that they were all mystical and magical. No, and uh, <laughs> no, no. All of them were dyslexic. At least two of them refused to read. Let's be honest. Um, yeah, no. <laughs> but when I say to my husband. But did your ma, she died when he was 13. Um, Sorry, 13, yeah, she was 13. He was 13 when she died. And I was like, tell me about your ma. And he had absolutely no stories about his ma. His ma never tell me anything. In fact, it was me who found out his ma was actually Irish by default. She had pretended she was Scottish, but it it stems back for the the old days, no Irish, no blacks, no dogs, that thing where people were discriminated against. But my point is this, is that he had no stories about his family, his dad never really spoke, his ma was quiet and angry. Maybe having seven boys would fucking make you want to be angry. (laughs) And all of them irritating. Whereas I had a ma who told hundreds of stories, my dad was animated telling stories, my ma was dead funny. Um, My brothers and sisters, I'm the youngest of four. So we were all very chatty and readers. We were all readers, prolific readers. I can remember getting my school book. You know that school book you got and it's got all the stories in it and then you read the story, then you answer the questions. I read that cover to cover first day, I got it, and went to the library and got as many books as I can. We were all readers. And my dad was funny and tell stories. My ma was fucking hysterical. She would... Talk about things she'd seen in the street, you know, and laugh about it and talk about it, and she had a very funny manner. And it was normal in my family to take centre stage and say, "Here's a funny thing I saw."
0: <laughs> so we were all at that. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the, that was cultural in your family, but then yeah. did you but did you have an awareness of like I'm going to put in, in air quotes arts like what you know anything in a theatre or. No. or Nothing no. like that was I was you. a
1: painter and drawer as a kid. Lindsay, mind I've got a painting for you. Um, I was a painter and drawer as a kid. I like my dad was a drawer and painter as well, and we did we did a lot of painting and drawing, and I still do that. Um, uh, uh, no, we never. Nobody was into theatre or the arts. We never. We were never taken to theatre. No. We never saw. I think we went to see the One O'Clock Gang, or something in my memory. I don't know if that's what. It, maybe you can help me. It was something at, like at the King's Theatre and it was recorded for telly and it was the very early 60s and it was like Scottish women and men doing a sketch. And yeah, something like that. And I remembered my ma taking me to that and seeing these people on stage and laughing, but that was the only experience I'd ever had. And then when I went to school, we were taken to the Citizen's Theatre and I remember the first play I ever saw, it was called Sailor Beware and i and it was like an english farce um and i was never really interested in theater or drama at school um and then when i had the pub i started to really see a rich seam of cultural stories that people weren't talking about mm-hmm. so i kind of took it for there
0: and did people say to you you know, like people say, oh, you should do stand-up, you're really funny. Did you get a lot of that?
1: Yeah, when I was, uh, I told a story that I did on this stage about the day my mum went up and barred the headmistress. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's a famous story that is one of my big stories that I do. But I remember standing in East Bank Academy outside, we do outside toilets, it was an old Victorian school. And I remember standing, telling this story, very almost word for word, like I did on this stage when I was 14 and slowly but slowly the crowd get bigger and bigger and bigger in the girls toilets and people were standing on toilet pans and people were standing on radiators <laughs> so they could see me while i did this story and it was the first time i had a whole audience and went and then when i finished the story everybody was like wow that was brilliant you're just like billy Connolly," which was their only frame of reference to yeah, yeah. somebody with this accent telling a story yeah. I wasn't anything like Billy Connolly, but they didn't have another frame. They couldn't say, oh, you're like Monty Python. Because back then in the 70s on TV, the only comedy we saw was English men that looked like they were working in Bradford and Bingley banks. You know what I mean? It was all just English men it was going, Mom, mother-in-law! So fuck, everybody's got a mother-in-law. And and she's fat. So (laughs) I never really understood. I never liked Monty Python or anything. I just couldn't relate to it. And then the first time I heard Billy Connolly on the Parkinson show, I was sitting drawing on a book and I went, somebody speaks like me on the telly. Yeah. Was the only thing that stopped me.
0: Yeah,
1: And he's not wearing a suit.
0: I'm sorry, I'm wearing a suit.
1: And right no, but in my, th- that's all the men wore suits. Yeah, yeah. And they all stood with me going, my mother-in-law, we were at the caravan. And I was like, fuck, shut up. But your mother-in-law, you probably don't even have a wife, you liar. And <laughs> here was a man, known as suit, so, talking like I talk. Yeah. And, and, and that kind of made me think that it was capable of being able to have this voice and not apologise for it.
0: So then is there a point during the, the pub years, if you like, where you make a decision to do this... You know, on a more permanent basis. Oh
1: yeah, no. Um, we get caught with guns in my father-in-law's house, and we had to leave.
0: That old story. Uh, yeah. Who hasn't?
1: <laughs> okay, that was weird. Nobody gets this. This is a true story. I was living in my father-in-law's house because my pub was being rented. my father-in-law was an old crook. The police fun guns. We get put in the nick overnight. I got out the next day and said to my man, "Well, I'm fucking done with this." Um, I don't know if you want to stay here, but I'm taking my Wayne, that cat, her school uniform, because that's all I need to take out of your poxy ridden life. And I'm leaving and he's like, well, I'm coming with you because I don't like them. And then we left and they went, what have we going any day? Because have got transferable skills. I went, I'll become a comedian. Really? Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> what did you Why say is to that, that no
1: weird? That's no weird. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's pretty bold.
1: Yeah, well, why know? How can I know? Like I said at the beginning, just do it.
0: Well, you did, Yeah, right? did what, it. What happened?
1: Um, turned out I was quite good at it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> How did you get your first gig? Um,
1: A man came into the pub in 1994 and said, there's a gong show on at the Tron Theatre, and there was Ford Keelan was there, and John Paul Leach, who was his original partner, and a couple other people, and it was our students, and I had never done comedy before, and the students were all really rowdy and kept shouting, it was a gong show if you got on for five two minutes, you win the gong, and I turned up with the pub keys in my hand because I'd forgotten to leave them in the pub. Um, I walked into the Tron Theatre for the Count and went on stage. Fucking nailed it. I was on for ten minutes. And they went, I need to run because I've got to shut the pub and then bolt it. And so <laughs> I was really good at that. I, I can do that.
0: You did ten minutes for your first gig? Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. And then I, and I got them. It was great. Wow. But then for 15 years before that, I'd been standing in a pub telling a lot of other arseholes to shut up, so I was good at it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> So it's a good training I room. had
1: nailed, shut up, you bunch of arseholes, I'm tall. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, so then did you, were you on the comedy circuit? Did yeah. you get stuck started into that? started
1: doing the open. And the, the weird thing is, is when I started doing stand-up, I'd, I had never seen a woman do what I do, because all the women in comedy were comic actresses, like Dorothy Paul and Elaine C. Smith. They weren't stand-ups. They weren't standing up doing stand-up. They were brilliant at what they'd done, but mm. they weren't doing what I do. And there was female stand-ups, there was Rona Cameron and Donna McPhail at the time, but they weren't on TV, so I was effectively doing a job that I had never seen a woman do, but because I had been brought up in a pub, and there was no such thing as men's roles and women's roles, and because when I had the pub, me and my man had the pub, one would go up with the way, and one would go down to the pub, and I didn't have gender roles, Mm. so I didn't see it as a thing, and I just thought I'd and be funny and apparently I, I was and it worked. <laughs> I'm not saying this is a career option for everybody. <laughs> I'm not saying everybody should fucking ditch their life the morning and go I ain't gonna hit the road.
0: Join the circus? Yeah. Aye, but then did you not experience pushback from, from what is a male-dominated world, the comedy scene? Um,
1: it's hard to say, I mean I look back and I try and look at, there was lots of incidences of and it still happens because I'm a female and I am... Um, in comedy, you've got a kind of pecking order and it's just... A, it's a meritocracy. It's basically if you're good, you're the top of the bill. Yeah. And then men work beneath you. And there is still an issue with that where, for instance, the Comedy Store in London don't hire women and I'm no funny enough for the Comedy Store, but all the men who work beneath me get work there. So there's things like that that's annoying. If you ever look at the Comedy Store's website and try and find a woman on the bill, fucking well done you... Um, we only got, I mean, they, they famously wouldn't hire Catherine Ryan and she had, she went fuck them. So she opened up, she did um, the Garrick Theatre and a five month run, followed the Garrick Theatre, <laughs> next door to the comedy store around the corner. So there is still that, but that's one guy and he's old and he'll die and that'll stop.
0: Yeah, that's so. Yeah. So he runs it and he does all, all the programming. His best
1: pals with my agent and, and he still insists I'm not funny enough for the comedy store. Wow. And he keeps on asking if I might come do it day an open spot, and I keep telling him to get it up him. So, <laughs> so
0: you've never played the comedy store because Mm-mm. of this. System. Oh, this
1: isn't just me. This is
0: yeah.
1: Loads of female comics, um, loads and loads. I mean, the, the comedy store's is It's a It's a tourist. It's not a place I might play anyhow. It's yeah, not like yeah. so. I'm giving you an example, there's that. And then there's occasions when you're the top of the bill and the men are beneath you, and that can cause a wee bit of, mm 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 And the, the other one is, is when <laughs> I was doing a gig in Dundee, and the part of the Dundee Theatre is at the back, and they had a comedy club in it, and God love them, I don't think they did comedy for a while. Me and my man turned up, and my husband... Um, doesn't really get involved in comedy. He was just taking me into the green room. And so he knew where it was to bring me back a cup of coffee. And when he walked through, the boy who ran the theater came up and went, right, so do you want a light on 20 minutes? And he just assumed my husband was the comedian. (laughs) My husband went, away you go, you arsehole. (laughs) That was that, that was all he says. Away you go, you arsehole. And I was like, my husband's got autism, he doesn't speak a lot, but you should be really happy that he's no doing anything else. <laughs> <laughs> so, he's like, and he, my husband turned to me and went, why would they fucking assume I was the, I went, mean, because you're a man. And he just couldn't get his head right now. He's like, but don't they have a picture of you? They know you're coming. I went, does not matter. And he's like, ah, shite, this was two years ago.
0: Two years ago. So,
1: you still get bits like that, and you still get things like when you get into a cab or somewhere and you tell people you're a comedian, they go, Oh, you're a woman comedian. I was like, No, when I'm on stage, I'm actually a man. Or they say things like, Do you swear a lot in comedy? I was like, Do you ask male comedians that? Hmm. They're like, Oh, well, I don't like women that swear about you're a fucking taxi driver, you're racist, you've heard swearing before. It's Um, bizarre, isn't it? You get that. Yeah. Or women aren't they funny? I was like, well, that comedy's subjective. I know a lot of women who aren't funny, but I know a lot of men who aren't funny as well. It's just that thing, women can't actually be funny. Women have to be like a man to be funny. I'm like, what, when I'm talking about my period?
0: Yeah, you have to be a a female version of what what we think of as... Yeah, it's
1: very weird, but not... It's sexism in the job. I think they, I think because I've got such a forceful personality, the arseholes that did that pics and annoy women didn't annoy me because they knew I'd give them a boot in the buzz. <laughs>
0: They know better. But I know yeah, they yeah.
1: annoyed other women, but yeah. they wouldn't date to me.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now you talk about your husband and he features quite heavily in your podcast. Mm-hmm. How long have you been doing the podcast first off?
1: Um well I've not done it in six weeks and his first words of the day were where are you gonna do a podcast? What about your ain't fucking podcast?
0: <laughs> so he keeps on top of that, does he?
1: Yeah, it does. Oh he does. Don't <laughs> worry about it. Um we done the podcast, Ashley and I did it. For about seven years, we did it every single week, and then we had to stop because her career took off, and I, and she's got her own radio show, mm. and she doesn't have to be stuck with me all the time. And we wanted to distance each other from each other, um, because you know she doesn't want to be Jenny Godley's daughter. And I don't want. I'm now Ashley Story's mum, which is a really lovely feeling. When people hmm. come and go, "You, Ashley Story's mum," I'm like, "Yeah, I'm Jenny Godley. Have you heard of me?" <laughs> 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 she, she's rubbish. I won an award recently. The twos were up with the same award for the Herald Culture Award. Me, Ashley, Frankie Boyle, and Kevin Bridges. (laughs) And I won. And when I won, Ashley booed me. And (laughs) the people in the audience didn't know it was my daughter. And they're just (laughs) horrified that this woman, boo! (laughs) You're (laughs) shite! Like that. And I had to go and collect a an award gun. that's my daughter. Ashley's story's my daughter. She's, but it's fine, it's a joke, it's fine. People were horrified.
0: <laughs> so was there a moment then when, when Ashley was growing up where you thought, obviously, she's going to go down a similar route?
1: Yeah, well, she um, did stand up when she was 11 until she was 13. She's still the youngest in the world to do her own show at the Edinburgh Fringe. No way. Aye, uh, she was always funny. Ashley was really funny when she was four I remember taking her into St. Alphonse's Chapel and the priest took her in the Stations of the Cross. And this is when I knew Ashley was going to be a comedian when she was four, um, and this is her humour at four. The priest was taking her in the Stations of the Cross and. And the priest, I mean, I'm not a Catholic. Um, she was christened a Catholic. And the priest was showing her all the, you know, and it's the worst ins- Instagram story ever the stations of the cross. <laughs> it's like they just get worse and worse as it <laughs> goes on, right? It's like dead sad hashtag pure shame for Jesus, right? <laughs> and Ashley was going round with the priest and he's like, that's a shame, pure Jesus. And he was made to go up a hill and then he's got a big cross and then put a jaggy thing on him, and then rush out on him and then he's dead. And Ashley turned to the priest and said, is there any pictures here? Maybe at the beach flying a kite. <laughs> that's not the end yet. That's not <laughs> the end. And the priest went, "Why?" And she went, "Cause he's wearing sandals."
0: <laughs> she knew.
1: I was like, "Yeah, that's my daughter." <laughs> <laughs> was there
0: ever, was there ever any part of you that thought, "Oh, maybe she should?" Do something that w- that will give her more quote unquote stability, like that you, t- so that she didn't experience the, the, no, the Ashley, difficulties you had. Or? When
1: Ashley was seven and eight, she had an old camera and she was doing stop start animation with Playmobil, was making her own films. She always wanted to work in film. She always wanted to write her own films. This has been way before I was involved in show business. My daughter made her own stop start animation in the Carlton. Mm. She used to do the whole of French and Saunders' videos, mouth all the words to them, she knew everything. Ashley was into comedy way before me, um, and she was always focused on she was gonna be working in television. She, at five, Ken Loach picked her days, one and only advert I ever done for Fairy Ultra. And uh, yeah, it had to be Ashley that get picked. The addition was, tell us about your holiday, and they got all these wee kids in. It was Laurel Bank school, she went to just up the road. And uh what the kids are like, I went skiing Ashley went. I went on holiday to Spain with John Lynch. John Lynch has got a way to my Janie. But John Lynch is auntie Janie used to go with my granddaugh story, but behind my granddaugh story's back, she went with John Lynch and they've got a daughter <laughs> called Jade, and I went to his house in Spain. Ken Loach went, that's the way we want. We want <laughs>
0: So she was unstoppable in terms of like being and an artist. She was, and she was always goals.
1: focused on wanting to do that. Yeah. Um, and recently, she's just been commissioned to write a six-part drama. She is getting a radio show. Her TV show has been recommissioned. She all Ashley never wanted to do stand-up. She always wanted to work in broadcasting and TV. So, but yeah, I agree with you. So, what did I do? Send her to stage school? No, Send her. I mean, we Every single penny I earned, I put Ashley into a private school, because the school we had in the Calton was getting pulled down, and the option was she either went to Bridgeton to a non-denominational school, or up into Denison to a Catholic school, and trust me, <laughs> I'm a Protestant who was married to a Catholic. We had a theme wedding, the theme was hatred, I wanted to do to that. <laughs> So every single penny I earned, I never had a decent holiday, I never had a beautiful house, I never had any, en- every penny I earned, I put it into getting her educated because I left school with no shoes. Yeah. So the only thing I could give was an education. So Ashley went to Laurel Bank and then she went to university. She got like six hires. 190 levels and a degree, honours degree in screenplay writing. She got an education, Mm -hmm. and for a whole year when she was 18, before she went to uni, she went and worked in an all folks home, a chip shop, a car dealership. She went to work in a lawyer's home. She did temporary work for a year so she would get a taste of the real world as opposed to just coming to the festival with a man, then going to Hollywood to be a big star. She (laughs) had to go and fucking scrub toilets in a care home. Yeah. Because if you don't, if you don't, try real life, then you shouldn't be talking about it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And you're, it would be fair to say you're pretty well known for being outspoken politically and, and, mm-hmm. uh, and you're an activist. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems like Ashley shares a lot of that with you.
1: No... No,
0: not quite as. Not quite. No,
1: no, she doesn't, and I like that. I like the fact that you know how you get the families like the man dar bikers and the wains are all into biking, and even though the wains don't know what a leather jacket is with fringes on it, and they've (laughs) never heard the motorhead, but they can say all the words because the man dad's into it. You know what I'm talking about? they families, but they're like, no, we all love camping, and the three wains are like, we fucking hate it, right?
0: Yeah, they get dragged along. I. She didn't
1: get dragged along. No, I am. Vocally, I support smp Vocally, that's who I am. Ashley um, is quite cynical about politics. She's—I'm not saying she's not. I'm not saying she's a Tory because she's still in my fucking house. <laughs> <laughs> I am saying. I am saying, she's much more tempered than me in her yeah. attitude towards politics. And, and she I absolutely I'm so proud that she'll say the SNP are rang about this, they're rang about that, they're rang about this, the Tories have got a point about that. She's very unbiased about it. And I like that. She's not like not everything's fine. She's not. She questions everything, yeah. and that's what I brought her up to be. And I like that because she makes me think twice about yeah. things. She makes me go, fuck, maybe she's right, maybe that is a bit weird because you can get carried away. We just go, not, ev- not everything we do is right. And I think that's a problem with every political persuasion, whether you're a Tory or whether you're SNP or whether you're Labour or no, there's anti-Semitism, no anti-Semitism. You can get carried away with just the absolute core self-belief that you can never admit one thing is wrong, because if you admit one thing is wrong, then everything's wrong. Mm-hmm. I think we all have to be, and especially in these times, in these times, I mean today, Scottish courts just put at bodies right in the hole. And, uh, <laughs> and we had Kay Burley on the news saying, can Scottish courts do that to England? I'm like, well, I wish I was a journalist and been able to talk shite like that. But <laughs> in these times, we have to explore and know, always just go, no, we're right. Because that doesn't help anybody.
0: Yeah, and there's very there's a culture of like you know the person to make the first comment or the person to speak the loudest. We get the sense that they're the one that's right. It's just
1: politics is no something that we. The, the weird thing about social media and politics in this day and age is there's women and men in this audience my age who were never brought up political, but now we have to be because Brexit's coming. Do you have insulin? Do you have um, you know? I mean, I was in the front. Row of a comedy club and I was standing on stage and there was a woman at the stand and I said, where are you from? She said, the Netherlands and I said, see if I give you 50 quid will you send her some a trip tan for me in December? And she said aye and in that moment I got a fucking better deal than Teresa did. So... <laughs> 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 we have to, everybody has to be political because it's going to, nobody, every single person on a bus can say, oh no, I'm not into politics We all need to be aware because something's going to happen. Yeah. So, Ashley isn't as fervently political as me, but she has got a very informed view and she keeps me from being crazy about it.
0: (laughs) And you're talking about social media, which is obviously a big feature of your day-to-day life. Yeah. Is it, is it for politics more than it's for for the promotion of your work, or what is it for um, for you?
1: I I really don't. and it, it, It's both. I mean, I'll, my work has politics because yeah. we don't have spit and image anymore. We don't have anybody satirising. Nobody's holding a mirror up to society like spit and image did. Nobody's doing it. They're all just going. That's normal for Boris to date that during the speech. No, it's fucking no <laughs> That's the kind of stuff my man does when I'm telling him I might have a lump in my breast. He's like, oh, tell me, man. I'm like, what are you doing? you arsehole. <laughs> so, no, society needs to hold a mirror up to these people and go, no, you can't just do that and get away with it. There has to be accountability. And if that's through comedy, then so be it.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then your, your presence on social media, you talked about it earlier on, about the more people... Try and shut you up, or, or, or troll mm-hmm. you. The more you speak, and the louder you speak.
1: My favourite thing to do now is because I go through phases. Um, Mace woman hit my age, and then just get like I'm just going to you know watch a box set on telly. I hadn't even watched telly. I sat down and I wait for it's usually Tories and Unionists who write to tell me I'm foul mouth, and I could spend twenty minutes trolling through their history to find them swearing, and then take a screenshot of you and put it up because I've got time for that shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favourite thing. You get a kick out of that. Oh, I.
0: More than watching TV. You're a
1: dirty, foul mouthed lady. Really? And it's dead easy. All you do is go into Twitter, put their name, like, at, you know, Betty McWilson, and then write the word fuck, and then all oh, their tweets come up with their name on it. You're like, really? You said fuck 200 times? Yeah, like, In 2019. Aye. Yeah. So, nah. <laughs> They're like, but you're not allowed to say it. Why? Because I'm a comedian. When did you become my life coach? <laughs>
0: But then, like, see, for me, if there's if there's confrontation, I want to get away from it. Do you mm-hmm. get sucked towards it? Do you? Are I don't you drawn get sucked to it?
1: towards it? I'm just really good at it.
0: <laughs> you, you enjoy it.
1: I don't it. see. I don't, well, I don't see why a man should be able to come on Twitter with a fake account, with a fucking union flag and his team in it gone. You're fat, and nobody would fuck you. I mean, mate, mate, you're seventeen stone. Why are you fat shaming me when you've got a problem with your own weight? And he's like, You can't see me, I've not got a picture there. I went, Well, obviously you're touchy about your weight or you wouldn't have wrote back. But <laughs> why are you allowed to say that I'm ugly and I don't get sex just because you've got a fake account? Maybe you've got a problem with women and, you know, maybe you jizz on a cat's back.
0: Maybe. That's often the answer.
1: La 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 la.
0: <laughs> we started... And
1: they go, oh my god, you shouldn't be allowed to say that to me. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. Fucking like 1690 Billy Loudon. I'm sorry that you've got a fake account and you've been cheeky to me and I've answered Mike. What was I supposed to do? Go away and make a fucking quiche? <laughs> we- You're arguing with a woman who fought with men for 15 years in a pub in the Carlton. What did you fucking think was going to happen? <laughs> At least I'm not scared to show my face and my identity.
0: But people, do, people must do that to you because they know that they want to I've got a new rule. Back,
1: right? I've got a new rule. If you're an anonymous football fan and you tweet shite at me, if you've got less than 2,000 followers, you're no big enough for an argument. Oh.
0: So I tell them
1: that they need to go away <laughs> and get more followers and come back and I'll argue with them. You're too insignificant for an answer.
0: Because they want an argument.
1: Oh, I right. Of course they do, but I just block them. I'm, I'm sorry. And what I write is, I'm sorry, son, you don't have enough followers to be able to get an argument. See, once you're more popular with the blue noses, get back to me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> block. Block. <laughs> and some years ago, you wrote a book about your personal experiences yes. as well. Yes, and that, would that Would it be fair to say that's kind of separate from your comedy work?
1: Yeah, well, it wasn't a funny book.
0: That's, yeah. Uh,
1: well, there was bits in it that were funny. That's uh-huh. true. There was bits in it that were funny, yeah. Um, I wrote a book, my autobiography, called Handstands in the Dark. and uh, Thank you. And um, it was about my life growing up. It was about the child abuse that I had suffered as a child. Yeah. And about uh, my ma who was murdered. And about life in the pub. About Ashley growing up. Just about my journey as a young woman, negotiating accounting through the 80s and the early 90s. And uh, my uncle who abused me, um, uh, my sister and I got him uh, to court and we got him put in jail for two years. And last year he died alone because all the men that fuck me tend to lie in their bed and die alone. (laughs) So, yeah, that's true. Every man that's ever fucked me about, weirdly, they die alone in their bed. That's a weird thing. (laughs) Karma. (laughs) The man that murdered my ma died alone in his bed. My uncle who abused me died alone in his bed. The other fucking my family member that missed me died alone in his bed, and I'm like, yes. <laughs> what was the,
0: what was the impetus for writing? I'm the book? sorry,
1: was I supposed to be sad about that? <laughs> I cheered.
0: <laughs> was that why you wrote the book? To you know, to sort of exact revenge or to? No, to I took him out? to court.
1: I took him to court, and I got him put in prison for not for revenge, for justice. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, the book wasn't a revenge book. The book was, I think, that it's important to write a book about. Child abuse, and not make it a really <sighs> okay. I think it was important to write a book that mentioned child abuse, but to show people, in a sense, that you it's possible to survive and not be fucking worn down by it. Not saying that the people who were are wrong. Because a lot of people suffer. I was very, very lucky that I experienced child abuse and I never became an alcoholic. I never became a drug addict. Yeah. I never became a self-harmer. I never got depression or like terrible stress-related illnesses. I'm very lucky. So I wanted to write about how that's possible because we automatically, as a society, assume that anybody who suffers any trauma, whether it be child abuse, whether it be in a horrible accident or whatever, that their life is going to go down a fucking terrible road. And I just wanted to say that it's possible for it not always to be like that, but the people who do do have that experience also need to know that there is strength, there is, there is the ability to have, I don't know, strength is the wrong word. There isn't a word for it. There isn't a word for survival, being a strong woman. I hate that. I hate when they give a bravery award to somebody who survived an illness. It's no brave. You're fucking, you're fighting for your life. That is what it is. Mm. And, and then what happens if you go an illness and you die? Were you no brave? So I, I don't like those labels, yeah. you know, when they go, oh, she bravely fought it. Well, my auntie died. it. Was she a fucking coward? So there is this ability for society to put labels on things. And I hate when people say, Jenny was very brave. I wasn't very brave. I was a fuck brave. I grep for nights, I was petrified. Mm. I hid under cupboards and everything away from this man. I was an absolute petrified child. I was fuck all brave about it. And as an adult, I still wasn't brave. What I was was outspoken. And I want people to be able to speak about it in their terms and accept that not everybody has to be fucking broke. Yeah. You know, I think that's the best way I can put it. And if you are broke, then that doesn't make you any worse or any better.
0: That's okay too. Yeah, that's yeah.
1: okay yeah. as well to go, fuck, this really broke me. Well, that's okay, because one day you won't be broke. The best piece of advice I was ever given was my wee stepma, who I loved, and she died as well. And my wee stepma used to tell me, and the best bit of advice gets me through is, Every single day is different, and nothing stays the same. See if you even try and make everything stay the same tomorrow; it won't stay the same. So when I have my dark moments, or I have a bad day, or and I go, "Well, the fucking moral will be different," I can't even make it bad the because nothing stays the same. And yeah. that's the only thing that kind of got me through. Yeah. Mm. Thank you for that. Put that in your wall. Fuck all, stays the same.
0: <laughs> Jenny Steady
1: life, laugh, love. <laughs> <laughs>
0: How are we doing for time, by the way? It's know? a
1: week. We've been here a week. A week and a half. <laughs> time
0: for a drink. Time, time for, a drink. for a drink. Okay, drink. That's, a, that's the public vote. Get the
1: soup pot out. Big Agnes is ready.
0: <laughs> <laughs> how do you how do you look at the world now? Is it is it a hostile place? Is it, is it a is it a friendly place? How, what's your world view now?
1: I think everybody's worldview is different, Is how you come, if I was a woman living in Syria, I, I, I'd, I'd fucking, it'd be a terrible outlook, but I'm no, I'm a woman living in the West End of Glasgow, I'm mortgage free, I've got a good house, I've got a good life, my Wayne is healthy, my man is healthy, I've got a, I, I'm fucking blessed by the ability to have really good friends like Tom and Lindsay, I've got good people in my life, and I'm really, really lucky, I've always thought I was very, very lucky and uh, next week I go to London, and allegedly I've got a two-book deal.
0: Two books? You oh heard I. it here fast! Ladies and gentlemen, I think that's our time. Janie Godley! Yeah. Well, I have to say a huge thanks to Janie for taking the time out of her life to come and chat to me. It was a great chat. It was fascinating, but also, as you as you got, hilarious by turns. And also a massive thanks to Gary McNair, who hosted the evening and who doesn't really appear in this episode, but was there and did so much work through uh, uh, leading up to the event on the day and on that evening in question. Also, Rosa Duncan, who managed the social media for the show, helped pretty much organise the whole evening, the whole event and uh, publicised it on the lead up and did so much, so much hard work and it really is appreciated. So to Gary McNair and Rosa Duncan, thank you very much. Also to Creon, the events manager at the Oranmore, Moor and everyone who bought a ticket and came along, much appreciated. Thank you for your support. So that's about it from me. Um, so I guess next week we'll just go on to 101. Might as well. Um, I've got a few more ready to go. So we'll just keep going, shall we? Um, if you want to keep listening, I'll keep making them. So thanks very much for listening to 100 episodes of it. And if you haven't listened to them all, that's okay, because they're all still in the archive and they're completely free. So if you want to hear those other episodes, just dip into your podcast provider or go on to Spotify or the website of the show itself, com. And that's where you can find the yellow donate button if you want to make a contribution to the show. It's totally free, so if you think that it's worth something and you can afford to, then go on ahead, dip into your pocket and make us a wee contribution. Whether that be monthly or a one-off basis, you can do it by going to puttingittogethercast.com and clicking the yellow donate button. So, until next week when I'll be officially back from the holidays and heading into the second batch of 100 episodes, I'll just say what I always say. Cheerio now.